Welcome to the Boil Down Coffee Club Podcast, the meeting after the meeting, where we talk about our experience living sober. We don't speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. This is only our experience. We have no monopoly on sobriety. If you don't like our approach, that's okay. There's lots of ways to live and lots of ways to live sober. This works for us. I'm Don. Well, hello there, Don. Hey, y'all. I'm Sam. Sam. How you doing, Don? I'm good. I'm sitting over here recovering just as hard as I possibly can. I see beads of sweat falling into a book there. Yes, I've got a book that I just read, Drunks, An American History. America's been full of drunks, right? It's full of, yeah. Still is. Our, our founders were a bunch of drunks. This was written by Christopher Finnan, and uh, it was just published. Oh. And I was quite taken with this one character in the book, and her name is Carrie Nation. Have you ever heard of her? Never. Now, I've heard of Carrie Fisher, though. This is not Carrie Fisher. This is Carrie. This is well before Carrie Fisher. There's a picture of her in here. If you could oh. describe that. Oh, wow. I'm thinking <laughs> Salem Witch Trials. Yeah, she looks like uh, a demon witch. She does. Woman. She looks like she's 60 or maybe. Of course, this is a long time she's ago. She rode hard and put up wet 60. 1920. She's wearing all black with a hood. She's carrying a, a Bible and a hatchet. <laughs> and wow. She, her story was it's just astounding. So this was, uh, let me read a, a part of this book and, about her. Nation began her campaign of civil disobedience in the summer of 1900 by marching into several liquor joints in Medicine Lodge, uh, which was in Kansas. And she would march in singing, Who hath sorrow? Who hath woe? They who do not answer no. They whose feet to sin incline while they tarry at the wine. <laughs> tarry at the wine. The owner of the first saloon threw her out into the street. But most people in the town were on nation's side. And officials closed all three establishments that she went in to try to close. Soon after, she traveled to a neighboring town and engaged in her first quote-unquote smashing, throwing bricks and stones at the mirror behind the bar and the shelf of liquor underneath. She would demolish dozens of businesses in this fashion. The climax occurred six months later in Topeka, the state capital, when she attacked a saloon favored by legislators. Armed with hatchets, Nation and three other women attempted to rush past the doorkeeper, who grabbed Nation, wrestled away her hatchet, and fired a warning shot into the ceiling. Nation seized another hatchet, demolished the bar, overturned the slot machine, smashed the beer kegs, and threw a heavy iron cash register into the street. My God, we need her as a like a, 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 a like an anti-hero, a villain in a movie. <laughs> Nation was hate. This is what's amazing: is the law was on her side. Nation was hailed as a hero by her fellow prohibitionists. This was in 1900. She had aroused the law-abiding people of Kansas to the disgrace of lawbreakers, 
partly by her own lawlessness, an editorial in the Emporia Gazette observed. Even those who deplored her violence were fascinated. Her smashings were front-page news from coast to coast all across the country. She was well known for this stuff. Later, some would even credit her with drawing national attention to the problem of saloons and leading the country towards prohibition, which went into effect in January 1920. So it's kind of the beginning of Prohibition. Wow. She is definitely not one of my favorite people. Although she sounds pretty badass. <laughs> She's badass, but woo I would not want... Let's just say that's not a grandmother I would want coming at me with a switch. I enjoy drinking, but it'd be hard to... It'd be hard to enjoy yourself with a woman coming at you with a hatchet. I know. I might spill my drink. <laughs> it would be a mess. We have a guest today. We do have a guest. Hi, guest. Hello. Hosts. Who are you? I am Tom. <laughs> hey, Tom. Glad you're here. Me Tom, too. Thanks well, for having me. Welcome to the Boiled Owl Coffee Club. Thank you very much. I've never been to this coffee shop before. It's absolutely spectacular. The yeah. artwork is incredible, it isn't is. it? It is, yeah. And I'm glad we could find a table. It's pretty crowded. <laughs> it is. We got a few tables here. This is being recorded in my living room. <laughs> but we do have coffee. You make some coffee noise. Slosh, slosh. It's hot. It's nice coffee. <laughs> I got iced coffee. Tom, what was your... What happened to you that caused you to quit drinking and come to AA? I'm diving right in. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> that's what got you there. <laughs> that's that's truly it. Uh, it was the um, it was the emotional darkness that it brought. You know, for a long time, drinking helped me emotionally to um, liven up, um, be able to laugh, be able to entertain, be able to be outgoing, be all the things that I didn't think I could be. And then that stopped working, and it started um, almost escalating the misery, escalating the darkness. And, uh, yeah, the, I was, uh, there were a lot of not yet. I was reflecting a little bit before I came over about what things used to be like. Um, there were, there were a lot of not yet. I was never arrested. I did not lose my job. My housing stayed the same. My relationship pretty much stayed intact. Um, so I didn't have any of those measurable consequences as far as I can tell. Um, but emotionally I was dying. I mean, I was just a shell of a person. I wasn't at all who I wanted to be, had lost track of who I wanted to be, um, was just a miserable shell of a person. And outwardly, people seem to have been shocked that I wanted to stop drinking. You know, I haven't heard anybody say, yeah, we knew there was something, you know, that kind of thing. But I knew any one of those consequences was going to be catastrophic. And, you know, I was any day away from running somebody over with my car or losing my job or uh, whatever. Were you trying to control your drinking? How did you know? Yeah, uh, I tried to control my drinking for years. I had all kinds of rules. I had the the three drink rule, yeah. um, and that you know I always literally. It sounds like a joke, but I always lost count after two. So after two, one, two, wake up the next morning. Like it was just after that, it was just a blur. As soon as I got it in my system, it just I was off and running. And this was out and about as well as at home or at home. I didn't really. Um, I think at home I only kept enough around to maybe I was kind of like subconsciously controlling it. I didn't keep bottles around and things. I would have uh, by the end I was uh, it was wine and pills. So I had and the the pills were prescription. So that was you know that didn't really count. 
Um, of course although not. It was you legal. Know, so it was legal. It was you know I had to go to a pharmacy to get it. So that was different, but uh, it sure did enhance the, the wine experience and the beer experience, the liquors, whatever I was drinking. So yeah, I could I could indulge more in that stuff at home. I wasn't popping the pills when I went out. Yeah, more at the end. It was much more in home and isolation. My the relationship I was in, I could hide in the house. He was upstairs. I was downstairs. He was playing video games. Um, I was wine and pills and painting and who knows what. You're a painter? At the time, I've got some, I like to find creative outlets and that was one for a little while. Not in any, I mean, as I'm surrounded by this beautiful art, not in any serious way, but I enjoy, it was an outlet for a little while. You know, I thought that, um, you know, I'd get to an emotional place where I really wanted to you know, throw, throw some stuff on paper and stuff like that. But uh, looking back, it was pretty emotionally charged stuff. Very dark colors, a lot of yeah. ru- running colors, a lot of, uh, you know. Expressing your psychic nightmare. Absolutely. That's the way my art yeah, was. It, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was a dark time for me. It was, uh, it was a really rough time. And basically the, the punchline of the story is went out for New Year's party. Just like any other New Year's, it happened to be New Year's, but it could have been any you know Tuesday night of any week throughout the year, mm-hmm. and uh, went to a pretty highbrow New Year's Eve party around the corner from here at the house of a man who is now deceased from alcoholism, from my understanding. And I have I, I was always a blackout drinker from the beginning, and that was one of my favorite parts of it because then I could truly let go of who I was and not have a lot of remorse about who, what I had done and stuff. Two and who knew? Yeah, and, um, and uh, yeah, I went to this party with two friends, and the next morning woke up on the couch on the phone with them saying they were having some pretty heavy discussions about the night before over at their house and some things needed to change on their end, and I, I said, that's exactly what's going through my head. Something's got to change. This is, this is awful. Um, I only had snippets of memories of the night before, and they were just embarrassed, really, really embarrassing. Going around to folks that were dressed really nicely for New Year's and had brought their favorite wine, and I'm going around pouring wine in whiskey glasses or vice versa. I don't know what the hell I was doing, you know, just making a spectacle. The embarrassment was only part of it, but more of it was just a spiritual misery. I was just, it was, I, was, I was dead, and there was a small, still voice that I had been hearing for just about six months in the back of my mind that had steadily gotten louder and this morning it just gotten loud enough saying you don't have to live like this anymore and that I'd had a variety of spiritual experiences since the summer before that that finally I don't know there was like a tilting point where it finally tilted enough to one side where I wanted to make a change that's really interesting the the a, a lot of people that come to AA have some kind of a real crisis that's like a I don't know, social crisis or whether it's with family or with the law. Something that's very obvious. Very as obvious. As opposed to measurable yeah. moment. Yeah. 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 Or, yeah. Or they're incredibly sick and just... And with you, it sounds like just a, a mental switch. Uh, with, with me, I that's... You're describing the what it was like for me because I was I didn't drink as much during the last three years of my drinking. I was trying to control it and not be an alcoholic, and so on the day it came, there was nothing in particular that happened. But inside, it was just like I, I'm screwed. I'm I'm in trouble, and mm-hmm. I know I'm in trouble. Yeah. I'm only fooling myself, and so it was just an inside job. It was just like 
it was a psychic nightmare I was in. You know? Yeah. And like I wanted it to end. Yeah. I was ready for it to end. Yeah, I was ready for it to end one way or the other. If I had, you know, ran my... I wasn't planning on doing anything intentionally, but if I had accidentally run my car into a tree, I wouldn't have minded that. Like I needed, yeah. I needed this to end one way or the other. Yeah, and I white-knuckled it for two or three weeks. I don't really remember. Did you know about AA? I did. I was brought up. My dad's been um, oh. uh, sober for 35 years, maybe. Was that a struggle for you during your drinking to know yeah. about AA? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I could go out to them and have a glass of wine with dinner and those kinds of things, and I could do that, and I could have an enjoyable night, except that I had that reservation in the back of my mind of, at the end of the night, drop off my parents, get home, and drink the way I wanted to drink from the from the get-go. I and then I would that. cut loose and then wake up the next morning with all the remorse or mm. just physical pain or whatever. But there was a particular night where I did make a choice where after those number of weeks, whatever it was, a couple of weeks, I was playing drums in a band at that point. And um, it was a Saturday night. I was supposed to go play a show at the Flatiron, which is no longer there downtown. We played there all the time, and I was going to play that night, and I just knew in my soul that my sobriety was done. I'm going to drink tonight. And it wasn't, I'm so miserable, I need to drink. It wasn't, I just knew. I, I've been, I've had this evening enough times where I know how this night's going to turn out. Mm-hmm. And I can either, and I don't want that to happen, so I'm going to try one of these meetings on. So I went the... So you've been sober how long? Two, maybe two, a couple weeks, two mm-hmm. or three weeks. And, um, and it had been okay. I was determined that my doctor needed to give me some Xanax to take the edge off and, and help me through this period, but he was not willing to do that. So That's a nice path yeah, to more so drinking. Figured, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. In hindsight, but at the time I thought... You, you, know, that, just, you don't know it. It was rational. Yeah, yeah. At the, the time, doctor, I mean... You know, the, doc, the doctor gave it to me. Nobody lives totally. with all these edges. Somebody, you know, Everybody has some way of taking these edges off. I need something to oh, take to shave yeah, these edges take, off, and that off. would do it. Yeah. Yeah, and... Um, so, yeah, that night I went, uh, I was supposed to be downtown at the bar to play at, you know, whatever o'clock. And so instead of doing that, I went in a couple hours early and dropped into a church downtown. I could feel myself getting emotional because it was just a profound night. It was just a life-changing evening. Wow. And I walked into, walked in the door, I didn't know where I was going, but I knew I had to go in the side of the church, I guess, from, I don't even know how I found out about this meeting, to tell you the truth. It was a big event because I, I'm gay. I was not out. I had been in a relationship with a man for five or six years at that time, but it was a totally closeted relationship. So there were a lot of secrets. In this moment that I walked in the side door of this church, there were a lot of secrets in my life. There were more secrets than there were openness. Um, so I walked in the side of a church to a gay AA meeting. That was a big step. Walking over the threshold of that, that you didn't know it was a game. I did. I think. Did. I think I decided like if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this all the way. So I'm. I don't know. I don't know what. I don't remember my exact thinking, but it was kind of like you know, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna come out and somehow come out in sobriety, I'm gonna come out. I need community. I think I need community around my drinking. I need community around being gay. I need people. I think that's kind of, and I don't think it was nearly that deep, but it was like, yeah, but you were I, I had fears, and I was going to dive towards those fears and say, let's do this. Like, let's just peel the Band-Aid all the way off and just get it all out there. And it's asking for help. I'm not going to do this alone. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're totally being open yeah, to absolutely. do that. Kind of, you're stripping down saying, this is me. Like, here yeah. we go, yeah. And, and I love your description of... Um, 
of that first meeting. Mm -hmm. um, tell us some more about when you walked yeah, so in. Yeah, so I walked in the side. So for transparency's sake, Sam was my first sponsor. So he knows mm -hmm. he knows the story. So you're going to well. have to be honest here. Yeah, so I'm going to have to really be candid about this. Uh, so yeah, so I walked through, and I have very vi vivid memories of entering the meeting. I don't remember the meeting at all, but I walked in the side entrance, and when you walk in the side of this particular church, the stairs split both directions. You can go up or you can go down, and I had no idea where to go from. I couldn't I couldn't see what was on either side of that. So I walked for whatever reason, I chose up and I walked around upstairs and there was nothing going on. And I was like, well, this isn't it. And like everything else, I was late. So, so, um, so whatever was happening was already happening. So then I, I remember I smelled coffee and I knew, well, where, where are those coffee, those trunks? <laughs> so let me try the other direction. And I walked halfway down the stairs and I, I remember walking halfway down the stairs and I was aware they could probably, they probably knew I was there. They probably heard the door and now I know that's true because I've been to that place enough times. And they could probably see my feet. And I was kind of walking down and walking up and walking and they're, down. They're thinking about you, yeah, too. Yeah, and they're like, well, okay, what's this? I know there's a story here. What's Is he this? carrying a hatchet? Yeah, really. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, I, and I was just about halfway down the stairs, and all of a sudden the whole room burst out in laughter. And I thought, this can't be the right place. There's no way this is an AA meeting. These people are too happy. Like right in that moment, it totally didn't match up with what my vision of what I was walking into. I thought it was going to be a very dark space, a bunch of old curmudgeons sitting around smoking and just, uh, I just pictured darkness and misery and oh my God, you know, complaining and whatever. And when I heard that laughter, I literally turned around and walked back up the stairs and thought, this isn't it. I know this is the wrong place, but I don't know where I'm supposed to go. And if I leave here, I'm going to drink and I don't want to drink anymore. And it's the only thing I want to do, and I don't want to do it. Right. So I walk back down the stairs, and um, and then I don't remember anything until the end of the meeting, where. Um, so you walked in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I walked in, and I, I sat down, sat through the whole meeting. I may have introduced myself. I don't know. How, I'm sure I didn't. I didn't introduce myself as an alcoholic for for quite a while in the meetings. I only went to open meetings and. Finally said, you know, I have a desire to stop drinking, and then maybe at some point I decided maybe I fit this criteria. But again, without those measurables, I didn't define myself. I, I, I didn't know what it meant to what that word meant, alcoholic. And I think a lot of newcomers struggle with that big word. That's a really big word. Anyway, at the end of the meeting, I had been. Um, Wait a minute. What does it mean? <laughs> ah. The best definition I was thinking. Actually, fortunately, I have an answer to that because I was thinking about it a few minutes ago. A guy that was coming to Summit Club for a while said that his definition, this is the one that I've connected the most to, my drinking did not always take me to dark places, but when I was in dark places, drinking always got me there. Like, in other words, when I drank, I didn't, it didn't always turn out catastrophic. But when th things got really shitty and I was really in a bad place, it was because I was drinking. And that's what my alcoholism was. And when that, it was bad, it was bad. And when it was bad, it was really bad, and drinking is what got me there. Um, and I just never knew where my drinking was going to take me. When I, when I picked up a glass and put it to my lips, I didn't know what the result of that was. Mm -hmm. it was there was zero predictability. I could have ended up at a reasonable hour at home and go to work the next day and have a very pleasant day. More often than not, especially by the end, that was not the case. You know, that was Yet still picking up the drink. Regardless. Oh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Fear was not a deterrent. You know, I think about that all the time. Fear was not a deterrent. The consequences were not deterrents. Um, my biggest fear as a, somebody who works with kids was running over somebody's kid. I had this ongoing paranoia that somehow I was going to be the, I was going to be the cause of somebody's kid dying. How, how would that and, have and, happened? How did, 
I drove, how do you work I with dro- it? I've drove drunk all the time. I just, I just, I was, re- I'm trying not to get into my job, but I, it was yeah. a responsibility that oh, I yeah. carried. There were, a, and. So go back to the meeting you. Yeah, so at the end of the meeting, I had been haunting, as it turns out, I keep flipping the timeline back and forth, but when I was drinking and pilling at home, evidently in my blackouts, I was haunting online AA meetings. So during those two or three... In your blackout. In my blackouts. That's what I would do to entertain myself. Um, so I would... They're really entertaining, right? <laughs> I guess. I don't remember being there. So after two or, week, two or three weeks of, you know, this, during that, that white knuckle period between not drinking and going to my first meeting, I had, I had logged on to online AA meetings because, now I'm bringing back memories, next to my laptop one day, there was, I had written this thing... This whole this whole statement about take taking the high road but not being a doormat and it was obviously I'd gotten it somewhere online but I didn't know I still don't know what it is but it's some kind of a that's recovery humility. statement. It's about humility. Yeah, and because that's a big problem. That's another word that people don't understand right. about Absolutely. humility. What does it mean? But it doesn't mean that we have to be a doormat. Right. To be humble. Mm-hmm. I think humility means being knowing the true source of my power, which is not me, which is my higher power. But that's advanced AA. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. For I'm new, not judging you right for now. A, <laughs> for a new com- from a newcomer's perspective, if you don't believe in God, then that's a pretty outrageous statement. But. Yeah, absolutely. But it was something I was evidently struggling with, even pre-newcomer. At the end of my drinking, it was something I was grappling with. Was you know who am I? What is my right size? What is you know. Mm-hmm. Humility to, is asking for help. I mean, it yeah. takes a lot of humility to and, ask and for help. Apparently, I was. So when I went back in sober, and I logged in and tried to introduce myself, I got this this powerful response of, "Yeah, we know you. We oh, know who you wow. are. This is not your first visit to this place." <laughs> and I was just shocked that I, these people knew me. I had no idea who they were. You know, so I had I had had a presence there, and I ended up sharing these meetings online. And the facilitator lived in out west somewhere Seattle or something and he came through Greensboro on business one time met me at the Green Bean down, downtown and Beautiful. so that was a cool resource for me initially when I was too hesitant to go into meetings but I knew I needed something so that was a that was a good resource anyway during that time I was also trying to read the big book online but I didn't know how to it never occurred to me to start at page one and like start reading through it or, <laughs> so I started at the stories and I would you know I'd breeze through the stories and try to find things that connected to me and some things did and some things didn't and I would go back to the beginning and the beginning was just too much without guidance or conversation yeah it didn't I make any sense I to me yeah I was totally overwhelmed by it it's so like just, ancient language uh, archaic language yeah. written in the 40s it's like what are these people talking yeah, about it's just, it, yeah I felt very disconnected from it but anyway at the end get back to your question at the end of the meeting i distinctly remember um a guy who we we both know now or i know now we both know came up to me after the meeting and just gave me a huge hug and said i'm so glad that you're here and i wasn't even ready for that part i think my response and my (laughs) my my socially awkward nervous way was isn't there like a book i'm supposed to get or something and it was the big book that i was asking about but i Mm -hmm. thought it was like hey you're new here's your big book like you know, so he gave me one. I paid for it. A couple of years later, I finally occurred to be like, I should probably pay for that book that he gave me. But um, so he gave me a big book, and and that was my first meeting. You know, so I felt really welcomed. I, I learned that these people somehow had, and I think that you know the laughter is what set me back up the stairs, but it also kept me coming back. Um, that that was something this whole group of people had that I didn't have. 
And I, yeah. I immediately gave me that taste of these people have something I want, and I'm going to keep coming back till I get it. So uh, yeah. I think if anything kept me coming back, it was that laughter that almost That's sent beautiful. me out initially. Yeah. You know? Because I thought also that when I first came to AA, there was going to be all these desperate drunks uh, encouraging each other to not drink and, you know, White knuckles everywhere. You can do it. White knuckles. You don't have to drink today. Everybody's in an old, dirty raincoat with greasy hair, you know, (laughs) trembling. And that's not what it was. Everybody was happy, and it was disconcerting that everyone had light in their eyes. I I felt like, uh, what what is it with these people? Right. And, and they would laugh, and laughter was gone for me. I, I, that was one of the reasons I, I came, you know, that, that was part of the psychic anxiety that I felt. It's like I couldn't laugh, I couldn't sing. I mean, there's mm-hmm. no, no joy anymore. Mm-mm. It was all, it was, alcohol took everything away. Well, I don't know a single alcoholic who has walked into AA laughing. Yeah, it's, it's not funny. <laughs> I mean, well, and, and we just... I mean, it, it, for me, AA was such a... Well, I mean, I tried to kill myself first. Right. So, I mean, AA was lower than suicide. That's right. On the option list. Right. Yeah. And and it was just one of those things of, well, this sucks. I can't kill myself, and I can't keep on living the way I've been living. And this looks like this is where I got to go. And, you know, and I've said this many times, and I'll say it many more times over the years, God willing. I thought I was going to get that consolation life, you know, that excellent, that, 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 that prize for, for, you know, here's your participation award. Um, and instead I've gotten an awesome life, but who thinks that yeah. when they are coming to AA for the first time? And that was an awesome part of that first year. As you say, that was, I got a quick introduction to a better life because there were a lot of newcomers in the gay meetings at that time. And I fell in and surrounded myself with them. And, you know, to a certain extent, we've, they're still around, but we're kind of doing our own thing now and things like that. But for a good few years there, we were a pretty tight pack. And we really ran, you know, the, the hall conference is going on this weekend. We did that every year and we do the picnic and we do Fourth of July and we did all this stuff together. And I think I really got a quick introduction to this better life, a, a different way of interacting. I remember us talking early on about not knowing how to go up to a stranger and introduce myself and that simple like the pragmatic lessons that I learned in those early days like find somebody in a meeting walk up to them put your hand out say hi I'm Tom what's your name like it sounds absolutely (laughs) ridiculous but I was so scared of people right and I I was so fearful of their judgment of me and I would just slip out and slip in late and and not have those interactions and um, early on there was just a lot of that you know a lot of that learning, a lot of the just basics. That a just, lot of simple direction. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I needed it when I walked in. Just like you're saying, mm-hmm. I needed simple directions of go do this. Right. I went out to dinner with my first sponsor, and we were at a restaurant, and they they came out with first thing set up wine glasses in front of all of us, and I was like going, oh my god, what's good. I don't, I, what do I, uh, and he just reached over and turned the glass upside down so the rim was facing down. He turned his rim facing down and they came back and just took the glasses and walked away. We never had to set anything and it was like the simplest thing in the world. Absolutely. And I was like, I, I didn't know what to do. I was going to run out of the place. Everything was worst case scenario. <laughs> yeah. 
people at work want to go out for drinks afterward. What should I do? Oh, no. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> go and don't drink. Oh. <laughs> That's an option. But what if they ask? They're not going to ask. They don't care. <laughs> okay, well, we'll see. And sure enough, they would never ask. <laughs> so offended. Yes. you got yes. you to you know my whole story, man. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I've got a little something that I want to share, too. Because, I mean, you, you brought up that I was your first sponsor. And you just mentioned first sponsor as well, Don. Mm-hmm. Not that I was your first sponsor, though, because mm-hmm. that would mean that I would be really old. Um, oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, <Sunny>. So... <laughs> I'll just call you Sunny. <laughs> you usually do. Um, I... The impact upon my life of you asking me to sponsor you was at a really critical time. I had been traveling for work and my partner had been in the process of selling our house. When I was returning home, I was supposed to be returning home to go to the new house and the deal had fallen through. Our house had sold, all of our stuff was on a transfer truck, our dogs were in Greg's car, and we didn't have a home. Fortunately, I had connections that got me, uh, got us a, uh, a place at a local executive apartments type thing where we could have the dogs and we were there for a week or two or something like that. In all of this, Tom asked me to be a sponsor. I remember we met at Panera and we sat down and we talked about it. And one of the most amazing things happened is that this newcomer asking for help got me out of my head on what was going on in my life and helped me to help someone else. So the reason I want to bring that up is there are so many of us that are so afraid. I was horribly afraid to ask someone to be my sponsor when I first came into these rooms. It's scary. And the thing is, you have no idea how much you're asking someone can help them. Mm-hmm. And that was just a huge thing for me. Absolutely. And it was funny that you, yeah, bring that up because I remember chasing, not chasing, slowly chasing Sam down in the parking lot because I had been so nervous, at least through the whole meeting when I finally decided to ask him that I couldn't ask him. So I awkwardly, like a puppy dog, remember going out in the parking lot just awkwardly following after him until he was finally alone and then asking about it. And the funny thing that I think that, you know, for me, the kind of the higher power God shot part of it for me anyway, was that I had been listening in meetings for a little while. I don't remember how far into into my recovery I had asked Sam or before I had a, a sponsor. I remember that I was specifically looking for somebody in a similar situation as myself, as far as relationship and I don't even know what the other criteria was. And when I ended up getting to know Sam, I couldn't be any more wrong about who I thought he was <laughs> and what his situation was and how I thought. But I think my higher power needed me to think that we had those things in common so I could get to the things that we did actually have in common because our backstory was very similar, as many of ours are, because, mm-hmm. you know, being feeling apart from and, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. a lot of different things. But I needed more of the surface level stuff to get me there, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. So 
it was an, inter- an interesting process that I kind of got, you know, tricked into asking. And then I had to have a little bit of the courage to, to ask about it or given a little bit of courage to ask about it. And then it played out in ways that I never could have predicted, you know, so it was it was a really cool process. It was a really cool time. I mean, a lot of people talk about how uh, challenging the, the early year is, and, um, and I get that, and I, I certainly had those challenges, but I was really blessed to have a very, just a very exciting year. I just remember it being a really bright, alive, fun time, and I just, I just was fortunate to really fall into a very active couple of meetings and groups, and, and um, there was also a meeting really close to work. I remember you know, going during lunch meetings and sneaking away from work and going and and uh, just falling in. I think I just fell in a lot of places and it helped an awful lot early on. It is like a bright, it's beautiful time. If you, if when I, my first year it was the same. Well, there's highs and lows. I remember a guy saying, I'd been sober for a month and I picked up my 30 day chip and he said, well, has the roller coaster calmed down and things are starting to even out? And I was going, no. No, not really, but I think it had a little, it certainly had. Mm-hmm. By three months, maybe it eased a little bit. But the thing about it was there would be periods of complete panic about how am I going to deal with life sober. Mm-hmm. There would be times where I really wanted to drink and had, to, and had no idea how I was going to get through that feeling and managed to get through it. And over a period of time, the thing is... I was learning how to live sober and learning how to feel that thing. Uh, when you get sober, you'll feel better. You feel better. You feel everything better. You feel your your happiness, but you feel your terror better. You feel your pain better. Because you feel. Because mm-hmm. you feel for the first time. You're not running from it. And how do you do that? Well, I had to learn how to do it. And it was exciting. Mm-hmm. Like you said, it's like being around people who knew how to introduce themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow, that's right. Yeah. People that uh, just simply people that have been through the same thing. Yeah. I'm driving. I remember. I don't know if it was you or who it was, but I remember. I I, I was driving around a lot for work at that point, and um, I was driving back from High Point to Greensboro, and I was driving past. I think it was a martini bar, and it was like you know. 11.30 in the morning or something, but for some reason I was having a really hard time driving past there, and it wasn't a place I, it wasn't a playground I had been to before, it's not a place I'd ever been to, and I remember getting on the phone with somebody, and they simply said, stay on the phone with me until you get past there, and we talked, and then there was in the rearview mirror and moved on, so you're right, it was just yeah. those little moments of having somebody on the other end that's been through those things to just kind of ease you through it, it wasn't a big a big dramatic moment or anything like that. It was just, okay, yeah, let's, we'll get through this in five minutes. You're going to be great. So let's do it. You know, I'm curious. Both of you are gay. I'm not gay. And I'm just curious about what it's like to be gay going to meetings and how that plays for you in going to meetings. Do you feel more comfortable going to a gay meeting than you do to a, an open meeting with it, with everyone there, or you know, or has that worked out for you now? What's that? What's that whole dynamic like? Do you want to go first? Uh, you can go. Okay. <laughs> so my experience with it was um, when I started coming to AA, 2002, and then out for several months, and then back in 2003. The beginning of my experience in AA was just gay AA meetings, and there were. Th- Three, I think, at the time. 
you know, one of the things that's recommended is 90 meetings in 90 days. And if there are only three gay meetings a week, um, it's going to be kind of hard to do 90 meetings in 90 days. So I surely didn't try that in 2002. I only went to the gay meetings. But I was absolutely terrified of being around straight men at that point in such an environment where if I looked at someone wrong, I thought I was going to catch some shit in, in, in the, at least, or worse. I, you know, I'm going to be found out. I'm going to be called out. Someone's going to look at me angry, whatever. Mm-hmm. But one of those things of I just I had that irrational fear, which is not necessarily irrational depending on where you grow up and when you grew up gay. Right. Uh, I'm almost, almost 47 years old, and I grew up in a tiny-ass little town in Greens, in, uh, in North Carolina. And, you know, getting beaten up for being gay was a, a distinct possibility. It never mm-hmm. happened, but it was a distinct possibility. So the gay meetings were a place that I could go to AA and not have to worry about the gay side of stuff. And so... By going to those three meetings a week, even though that was not enough for me to get sober, it gave me the introduction and the comfort with AA such that after that period of five months when I I was drinking again, when I came back, I knew I needed to go to mainstream meetings too. And the cool thing that happened was when I went to those mainstream meetings, I saw people in those meetings that I had seen in the gay meetings. So I knew that, okay, if they're here, it's then okay. this is safe. Yeah. And secondly, I knew how AA worked. I had already had my introduction to AA, and, my, and I, I had a comfort level with it. And so for me, um, most of my meeting attendance is mainstream meetings. And I continue to still go to some gay meetings particularly because I want the gay meetings to be there. I want them to continue to exist so that people like me who show up have a place to go to, Mm -hmm. which increasingly that is is diminishing. Increasingly, that's diminishing. The fact is that as as, as gay men and women are more and more... (laughs) You don't need to question that. But as society has, has become much more accepting of, of gay people and, and the LGBTQIA LMNOP community, yeah. it's less and less of an issue for us to be that's, show up to mainstream AA for our first meeting. That's happened in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, will gay meetings always exist? Yeah, I imagine so. But they're not as critical. They're not fit, filling a need, I think, that's as strong as it was needed earlier. Well, there's men's meetings, there's women's meetings, there's doctor's meetings, there's lawyer's meetings. Mm-hmm. That exists all throughout. It does. Yeah, and Bill was a big proponent for, for specialized meetings. My experience was a little different because of where I was and things. I didn't know any gay people when I came into recovery. Besides the guy I was basically married to. So uh, I wasn't out to my family. I was just trying to think if I came out. Yeah, I, surra- I, I dove into the AA meeting, but I, I think for me, and I'm trying to re- really remember, my first home group was a gay meeting, but um, became the men's meeting. And I think those are the only two home groups I've had 
but I've gone back and forth between those two, depending on where those meetings are and where I am in my life. So I think depending on those two, depending on my perception of the health of those meetings <laughs> and my own health and needs, I just waffle between the two. So I want to be clear, the men's meeting is a straight meeting. Or not it's, straight, it's, it's a, a mainstream meeting. It's not a specifically meeting. gay yeah. meeting. It's a men's meeting right. for any man. Yeah. I'll tell you, the one thing that keeps popping to mind that I think answers this for me is that really early on, I went to uh, a Wednesday night meeting, which was the mustard seed. And the reason I say that was because it was a very, it was all older white guys. And it wasn't a lot of people. And when I walked in there, this one I was on early for, actually. I wasn't even late or anything. <laughs> I went in there a little bit early, and it was, you know, I was young in recovery, so I kind of walked in, sat down, and just kept my mouth shut and just listened to people's small talk and stuff. And it was all political, and it was all on the other side of the spectrum from where my beliefs were, and it was making me really squirmy. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, I stuck around because what I learned was the moment that meeting started, all of that stuff disappeared. And I knew that the outside issues were a principle. Leaving outside issues outside the meetings was a principle of AA. And it built so much faith in me in that moment to see that play out in that way. And I truly believe that it was true. And I've had very few. I, I can only remember one instance in particular where I did not feel emotionally safe in a quote-unquote straight meeting. And that was actually pretty recently. And I brought it up at the end of the meeting. Somebody had made a comment, uh, a pretty homophobic comment. He thought it was a joke, a funny, and he felt safe in a men's meeting to do that. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the meeting, I processed it for the entire length of that meeting. How am I going to deal with this? Unfortunately, he left, so I couldn't talk to him directly about my concerns and how uh, uncomfortable it made me. But I did bring it up as a home group member and basically said, I need any newcomer to in, in this room at this moment to know that those comments do not reflect this meeting in any way. That as a home group member, I assure you, we put principles before personalities and your recovery is our priority. And the reason I can say that with confidence is because it's the only thing I've seen in the past nine and a half years in AA. And I value that tremendously. Now on the other side, going to a gay meeting. That was beautifully handled. Well, Absolutely. thank you. It took, yeah, well, <laughs> it could have gone any direction knowing my emotional state at any given time. But um, yeah, it went really well. And on the other hand, there's a real comfort. There's a real comfort going into a gay meeting, not just not just around pronouns. Mm -hmm. You know, this morning, I, this morning in the in the men's meeting, I spoke about a, re, a previous relationship. Not it was part of a bigger point that I was making, and I chose to keep it kind of ambiguous because I didn't want to detract from the bigger point I was trying to make. Mm -hmm. I feel like if I say, yeah, and then I broke up with him, then everything after that gets lost on somebody mm -hmm. saying, oh my God, did he say him? What's going on? Right. Um, so, you know, I keep it not because of a safety thing. I might be belaboring the point, but, you know, I keep it ambiguous to make my point. Uh, in a game meeting, I don't have to do that, but it's bigger than that where there are kind of undercurrents of understanding that we have. Um, I could talk about I think talking about athletics in a men's meeting would terrify me more than talking about my sexuality, <laughs> if that makes any yeah, sense. Yeah, totally. There are analogies that are used. There are there's, there are subtle differences that I feel more comfort in a gay meeting. Does that well, make sense? Like, yeah, so, so just as culture, an alcoholic. Just a cultural culture. thing. Yeah, sure. Well, just as only an alcoholic can speak to another alcoholic in a way that we instantly get each other. There are conversations, there are ways of, of interacting that Tom and I have, because we're gay men, 
that you and I, Don, are not going to to get. You're not mm-hmm. going to understand it because it's not part of your experience. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I'm hearing you say about right. that difference. And breaking, having that inherent understanding of each other helps me to get to the recovery part faster. Yes. Right. So then we have that walking in the door. I introduce myself at a game meeting. There are certain understandings that we have that I can just die. You know, I can get closer to the message. I can yeah. get closer to the message faster. Sometimes. Well, and the same thing happens. And so that's the value of a men's meeting for me is this not distracted by women because I get distracted by the women in mm-hmm. the meeting. Mm-hmm. And. Why do you no. think I go to men's meetings? <laughs> oh, did I say it's that exactly, out loud? <laughs> exactly the opposite for you. But the, that's one of the reasons I like the men's meeting. However, I have a gay sponsee, and it was the first time that he expressed to me that he was uncomfortable in a men's meeting because someone had made uh, a joke that was, a, you know, a homophobic joke. And he was uncomfortable in that meeting. The men's meeting ended up dividing, and we, and we now have two groups, and the smaller group seems to be have less of that. Also, the same thing happens with um, misogynist jokes against women, and I really dislike it when those kind of jokes come mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. Even though there's no women there, I, I, don't, I don't like this. I'm not about disrespecting other people. That's not sobriety. I think it's really, I liked what you said, I think it's interesting what you said about talking about politics before and how beautiful it was that then, as soon as the meeting started, the politics dropped and everyone was together. I think it's really important that we don't talk about politics, that we watch our language, watch our jokes, and because we don't know who's sitting around us anytime we're in the meeting, before the meeting and after the meeting as well. It's just there's lots of times in life for politics. It doesn't have to happen in AA, and it doesn't have to be talked about in AA because it separates us. Mm -hmm. And now I went to a meeting in a small North Carolina town that I won't name, and I walked in. It was a small clubhouse. There were four guys there, and I was obviously a stranger, newcomer, and sat down, and he immediately told me this the nastiest joke that was an anti-gay joke. I cannot remember what it was, but it was just a filthy joke. Mean-spirited as could be. They all laughed like crazy, and I was just looking at them like, and at that point, I had a gay sponsee. Mm-hmm. I was going, you don't know if I'm gay or not, and you told this joke. What are you doing? I'm thinking, mm-hmm. and it's true. He does. He doesn't know. He mm-hmm. he had no way of knowing. So I think it's so important that we monitor ourselves and be sure we're welcoming everyone. I love that we're talking about this. So just before we came over here to record, I was having the first of a a, um, a, a biweekly book study that I'm having with my sponsee family, and one of the things that we were talking about was outside issues. Um, and talking about uh, you know politics, religion, etc. Um, and you know something that I was told uh, or heard early on was leave your politics and your religion in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. And while that is great um, advice for all of this, and I love that the politics, from my experience, politics 
more so politics than religion, but in general both, are pretty much not part of the meetings. Um, there have been slips by some people over time, and they tend to get handled okay. Most people here are pretty good about it. But I think it's beyond even the parking lot. You know, politics and religion and other, the, the misogynist jokes, the homophobic jokes, the other disparaging stuff doesn't need to be around AA. I think it's not absolutely not in the meeting, but also not in the before the meeting, in the after the meeting, the space around the meeting. And the reason being, that guy who told you, one of the reasons being, that guy who's told you that, that really bad joke, when the meeting started, did what he have to share, what he had to share, did you give it the same weight than you would, that you would have if he had not told that joke? I was completely out of the meeting and never went back to that club again. <laughs> yeah. So, so what happens is that if I learn that so-and-so is, is vehemently anti my political position, then I am quite likely to instantly discount anything that that guy is sharing, right. even if it's something that could really be useful to me. Right. So it's not just that it can chase off newcomers. People who had never been to an AA meeting it's, might hear this thing and feel like this the, is not. It can affect those of us who have been around for a long time to where we don't even hear the things we need to hear because of division that's caused by that type of language. We're, we're wrecked together in the... What's the expression? We're wrecked together in the same boat, uh, same ship. We have a, a, a common problem, and we're people who would not mix. So we don't want to focus on the things of where we're different. We need to think that focus on the places where we're alike. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if I'm looking to help other people, which is what I'm, that's how I'm stay, that's how I stay sober, is to be available to other people. If I'm looking for my higher powers will, what's the next right? Well, obviously it's not going to be harmful jokes, hurtful jokes, things that would separate me from other people. It's also how we learn. I mean, just like I learned how to go up to that person and shake their hand and introduce myself. I saw one of the only times, I only remember really two times where it was an issue, but somebody was sharing in the lunchtime meeting and they said it was a male that was sharing and they said something about he. And the guy in the row in front of me was a newcomer. And he immediately, his initial reaction, his response, like his visceral response was to giggle and lean to the guy next to him and say, did he say he? And the guy leaned over and said, he did. Now shut up and listen to his message. (laughs) And I thought, that's what we do here. We don't say... That's wrong. Get out. We teach you how to do it right. Yeah. That, that was fantastic. It was phenomenal. And I have no idea who any of the players were, but I remember thinking in that moment, that was an opportunity. And he did. You could see his body language change. And, you know, I think he understood, oh, we don't do that here. That's how. So then that's what he carried for. And that's, I think that's our responsibility in these meetings when those microaggressions or whatever come up. When the B word comes up and... In the the men's meeting, mm-hmm. people don't put up with it in a general sense, and they say, you know, well, I'd rather we not. Or in a in a in a graceful way, they correct it for the betterment of the group and to make sure the message gets through. And I just love that about the program that we're and, working and with. it's not out of uh, it's not from a place of being prudish or or um, you know controlling or anything like that. It's coming from a place where we are all in this together, and if we do not 
have unity in AA, if we are not here for each other, then we're all screwed because this king it can fall apart. It's true. And maybe that's what you meant by wrecked by this in the same boat. Yep. Like like I need you to be steering towards recovery because I need what you have. Does right. that make sense? Right. Like yeah. it's not just a matter yeah. of you stepped on my toes like I need you to help out with this. Yes. <laughs> like yeah. we're, we're in this together. I'm going to help yeah. you, you're going to help me, we're going to both move forward. That's yeah. It. Yeah. Well, that is great, Tom. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. Oh my god. There's a woman with <laughs> It's time for our old-timers question. Who are you calling an old-timer? You! That's what happens if you don't drink and you don't die. No matter how long you've been sober, it's still one day at a time. Don't you call me Sonny. Sonny. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, if you want to ask us a question, uh, please go to boiledowlaa.org. Today's question comes from a blast from the past. Carrie Nation asks... Drinking and drugs are bad for everyone. It's sinful. Don't you think everyone should quit drinking? No. Thanks, old timer. (laughs) Oh, you have more. No, I don't. Yeah, no, I don't think everyone should quit drinking. We. And AA doesn't think everyone should quit drinking. I wish I could drink normally. I wish I could have. a couple of glasses of wine. I wish I could have a couple of beer. There are people who can, and it doesn't ruin their lives. And that's what the problem... You know, I heard this thing of, uh, I'm a person who doesn't drink very much, but when I drink, I turn into another person, and that person drinks a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. If I could uh, just... If I could have a, a beer or a glass of wine and enjoy it at dinner like my brother does, like my wife does, I would do it because it doesn't, there's no harm in it. So AA has, that's one of the things I like about reading that book that I was quoting earlier about mm-hmm. all of the temperance movements, lots of them throughout history for um, 200 years or so before, uh, before AA came to be before Bill and Bob formed Alcoholics Anonymous um, it was always that people needed everyone needed to quit drinking because it was sinful and it was wrong Mm -hmm. and they said no not everyone doesn't need to quit drinking it's like if you are an alcoholic and alcohol is ruining your life and you can't quit we have a way to quit that works. There are other ways to quit as well. You're welcome to try them. This works for us. And I love that about it. Mm-hmm. That's what was attractive to me. Love that. What do you think, Tom? I don't know. I mean, I, I definitely feel like the answer is no. The two words that stood out for me and Don's answer were sil- sinful and wrong. Two of my favorite things. Um, <laughs> I've always been, even as a child, I've always loved the dark underbelly of life. I like the dark corners. I like the. I remember sneaking away and family vacation in Ocean City because I saw a punk rock club on the way in. I was like 11 years old. 
and I snuck away to see what was going on in that place, you know, in the middle of the day, and they were setting up for a show, and and I don't even I don't even dislike that about them. I really, you know, it's part of me. I embrace it. I like it, and I still get to explore it in, in sobriety, which is great. <laughs> Um, I, I think the common factor between recovery and the question is the drinking, but I think they're two totally different things. I see people, I, go, I love to go to concerts. It's still one of my, I'm so glad. I really, one of my hesitations in coming into recovery was I thought I wouldn't be able to go to live music anymore, much less play live music. And I'm so glad that I can still do that. You can do both. I can do both. Absolutely. Yeah. I can do both better. I can I, remember them. I can enjoy them more. There's, it's a much better experience now. I thought I was going to lose both. I thought, yeah, that's the only reason I didn't go to those meetings the first three weeks was because I, I was sure you guys were going to tell me, you can't, you're not going to a bar to play music. Mm-hmm. And they didn't. They said, yeah, go do it. Let us know mm-hmm. how it goes. We'll go with you. We'll mm-hmm. see you there. You know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it's, I think it's two totally different questions. And, I, you know, I love that people... Um, can if they, if they want to drink that they can do that in a healthy way that doesn't you know cause them to run into my car i don't like going to concerts when people it does make me squirmy i think the only holdover i have is that it makes me squirmy when i see people's personalities and behavior change it makes me really nervous now um, and that's different for me because uh, like at concerts i can mm-hmm. see i can feel it i can feel the energy change at some point it's like oh look at that it's time to go and yeah. i just and it's not because i want to drink it's because it's unpredictable and i don't i don't like unpredictability as much anymore and it makes me a little squirmy but um i don't I'm, i don't like people throwing up on my feet i don't like that i don't like fights i don't like yeah. you know stuff like that um i mean a good argument every once in a while is all right but um <laughs> but um i'm glad that i i i you know, I hear a lot of people say, I, I wish I could drink normally. And the way that things have turned out for me, I can sincerely say that I'm so glad I'm an alcoholic, which is absolutely insane and sounds like, oh, that's so sweet. That's so cute. But it's, um, I couldn't have learned the basic skills that I've learned without AA. I didn't have them. And it wasn't, you know, I don't know why, but I just didn't have the, the abilities that I have now. And a lot of the confidence I've built and social skills. And you asked me about skills I picked up in my 20s. And, you know, the better of those have continued because of my experience in AA. So I'm just, I'm really, I'm really grateful for recovery and the, the, um, the hard stuff I had to go through to get me here. Yeah, I, I love that you bring up the uh, the, the, the sordid places because we can go to the most sordid places on earth, provided that my um, spiritual condition is is fit. And that is a horrible paraphrasing of that statement in the big book, <laughs> but it works. Um, and trust me, I do go to the most sordid places on earth and have a lot of fun sober, and I leave sober, and that's an important thing. Um, you know. AA has no opinion on outside issues. And surprisingly to a lot of people is the concept that alcohol is an outside issue. Now, alcoholism is what AA is all about. Mm -hmm. And I love, Don, that you always are, are emphatic that it is a solution, not the solution. There are many others. Um, This is the one that works for me. And Alcoholics Anonymous is not um, about temperance. It is not about whether or not you should drink alcohol. Alcoholics Anonymous is about how to recover from alcoholism if that's what you want to do. And so if you drink, Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't have an opinion on it. If you don't drink, Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't have an opinion on it. 
Um, and it's not supposed to. Can you imagine that most of us, I think, who come into these rooms, I certainly did not come into these rooms with the supposition of, I am never going to drink again. I came into these rooms with the idea of, my life has gone to shit, and I want to, I want to stop hurting. Now, if I had the knowledge or, or even the idea that Alcoholics Anonymous is anti-alcohol, and that they think that everyone should have no drinks. You know, alcohol is bad, it's a sin, this, that, and the other. Then that would have been a bar, an obstacle for me to even consider coming to Alcoholics Anonymous to get the help that I needed so that I could stop hurting. Now, what turned out was, oh, my life is a lot better with me not drinking. And that's a very important note uh, note there. Me. My life is better without me drinking. Um, and that's why I'm here. I don't care. Now, I love you guys, but and it would hurt to know that you were drinking, especially if your life were falling apart from it. But Alcoholics Anonymous does not have an opinion about you drinking alcohol. And I think that that's one of the most um, important things for us to note is that you know, AA, and I'm not speaking for AA here. This is my understanding of AA. AA's purpose is to help people who want to stop drinking, stop drinking. That's it. We have no opinion on other stuff because that actually gets in the way of what we were talking about earlier, and that's unity. Right. So, no. No. Unanimous no. Emphatic. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on the Boiled Owl. Coffee. Thanks for having no, me. It's been Absolutely. fun. Thanks so appreciate much. appreciate you being here. What's that thing? bird been smoking? <laughs> we have no opinion on that either. Thanks for joining us. The Boiled Owl podcast is posted on the 1st and 15th of every month. Visit our website at boiledowlaa.org or email us at giveahoot at boiledowlaa.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit aa.org. Please note, Boiled Owl AA is produced by members of AA and only expresses our experience and opinions. It is not endorsed by AA World Services. Press stop, Don. No, really, press stop, Don. Now? Now. <laughs>